Kristen Rawls. And I'm Jeff Eaton. This is Christian Rightcast, the uh, podcast where we try to explain, historicize, and translate the Christian right to help people understand American politics a little better. And uh, it's interesting because over the past several episodes, we've we've done deep dives into like some personalities and some ideas and ideologies that you can say are strong threads that have influenced like the views of the Christian right and the way they look at politics. But this upcoming series and this episode in particular, um, it's going to be about um, something you may or may not have heard of, but it's definitely not a term that's gotten a lot of like traffic in, you know, general press or even, you know, political discussion about the role of religion in American life or anything like that. It's uh, it's called um, Christian Reconstructionism. And the critical idea is not necessarily that it's about reconstructing anything about Christianity, but about reconstructing the world to some degree. Um now I'll I'll pause there because there's a lot of tangles to it, and I don't want to I don't want to step over any of that. Um, and Christian, you've been you've been doing a lot of deep dive on yeah. this stuff because like I'm familiar with it. Mm-hmm. I've read some of the works, but like it's it's a big big idea with lots right. of different like, sort of tendrils. And mm-hmm. it's 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 hard to get zoom out and get a big picture of it. So, with that right. said, do we, do we want to dive in? Yeah. So, um, it's it's really had a really profound impact on uh, American politics and on the Christian right. But you have you probably most of our listeners may not have even heard of it. Um, and I want to be clear that we're talking about a far right movement, of course, within evangelical Christianity that has absolutely nothing to do with reconstructionism and Judaism. Um, (laughs) Because, because more noun collisions. This, this came up on, on Twitter recently. I, I, yeah. Um, So it's a specifically evangelical Christian movement that's focused as a very brief introductory sort of definition on remaking or reconstructing culture, society, and government according to so-called biblical law. Um, The implications of it are complicated and rooted in a very complex theological system, so it's going to take some time to fully unpack what that means. Um, I do want to say up front that um, while this gets kind of into the the weeds, we're, we're going to address the, the ways in which an extremist and in some ways obscure movement has really influenced po- politics generally on the American right and also in evangelical Christianity as a whole. So not very many people refer to themselves as Christian reconstructionists, but it's hard to overstate the importance of their influence. It is a purifying movement that takes a lot of its inspiration from the Puritans Um and it has had its most direct influences on the Christian homeschooling and Christian schools movements. And, um, and that's actually where I, I'm pretty sure I like came into contact with a lot of the names and mm-hmm. sort of core texts of it. I know like my family wasn't as deep into it and, as a lot of other people, but you know, you, 
you get homeschooling curriculum books and you go to a conference here or there mm-hmm. and you sort of brush up against a lot of this stuff and go, oh, hey, wait, that, that's interesting. And, you know, and then later you realize, oh, that was that guy. Yeah, yeah. So if you've known people, this is uh, to, for our listeners who were educated according to what they call the Christian worldview. By the way, a term that originates with Rush Dooney, it's it's very likely that the upbringing is heavily influenced by Christian Reconstructionism. Whether the people who who are, are who were educated this way are able to articulate that or not and it's not to say that every christian homeschooling family is reconstructionist or has even heard of reconstructionism but that their views have been shaped in very fundamental ways by this movement so um it hasn't only influenced the homeschooling movement um by the, in the course of this series, we're going to cover the ways it's influenced the libertarian uh, wing of the Republican Party in groups like the Tea Party, the Ron Paul and Rand Paul uh, segment of the Republican Party, and now the Freedom Caucus. And we're also going to talk about its influence on mainstream evangelicalism, where a lot of the ideology has, has seeped into the, the less extreme elements, like outside the homeschooling movement. But it's but not just there. It's also been influential on the fringes of the far right with American survivalists and militia groups, as well as neo-Confederate groups that support uh, racial segregation in a white ethno-state. So, and, and like, <laughs> I again, I, I don't want to jump in you know, I, I don't want to jump in and opine, you know, too too much, but it it feels like before we even get into any of the specific beliefs and ideas of Reconstructionism, mm-hmm. it feels like it's really one of those kinds of ideologies or like frameworks that it, almost its defining characteristic is like starting with a premise and being willing to stick to it no matter yes, where it goes that's and, very true and, and it like lays hard claim to this mm-hmm. you know the purity of its idea is what it's willing yep. to stick with yes. even if it ends up taking you logically to some really mm-hmm. deeply deeply troubling places right so so the reason i have an interest in this is because i've known members of the christian homeschooling movement for most of my life Uh, i grew up in the south uh in a very evangelical area and uh homeschooling is pretty popular where i came from um i was i observed i was often talking at cross purposes with homeschoolers i knew like we were speaking two different languages, and and I realized that's because we really were. <laughs> I had been it turns edu- out, yeah, yeah. I'd been so I'd been educated in a secular system, and they were getting wildly different ideas treated as facts that are largely based in Christian Reconstructionism. So, I've often wanted to understand what they were talking talking about, and I've spent. A lot of time reading and talking to people raised this way, especially former evangelicals, about what was going on so I could understand it. So I'm going to try to, in this episode, I'm really going to try to give a bit of a summary. Um, I'm not, oh, sorry. I I was just going to say that I I think, you know, just in our conversations about this episode leading up to it, Mm -hmm. I know that one of the things that you've mentioned is that it's, it's very difficult because of how 
you know, complex the, the sort of theological and ideological underpinnings mm-hmm. of Reconstructionism are and how many different directions it's sort of fragmented into and how many yes. other schools of thought it's become influential in and how few of those groups influenced by Reconstructionism would ever be willing to call themselves Reconstructionists. Yes, and yeah. Well, it's like yeah. That, that theme is one that I think it, it, we come across in lots of different you know, areas like this. And it's, it's a difficult balance to, right. to find between Very. like trying to get people up to speed on some fairly like gnarly and subtle theological differences mm-hmm. that cause two groups to be at each other's throats, but not, but in a lot of ways, it's sort of like the, the sort of it's splitting hairs in, mm-hmm. in many ways when we're talking about like what these underlying fundamental influences are. Mm-hmm. And it's that distinction between talking about these threads of influence and ideas yeah. that have shaped different communities and mm-hmm. how the communities self-identify. So right. if I in particular sort of step you know, stomp on that line at any point, please don't take that as like a slight on the research that, you know, Kristen has done in, in, <laughs> in what she's talking about. <laughs> so um, I will say I'm not a theologian or a religious studies scholar. I want to name, um, I think the most important book that exists on Christian reconstruction is probably Julie Ingersoll's book, uh, Building God's Kingdom inside the world of Christian Reconstruction. Um, that has probably contributed the most to my understanding of it. And we're going to put all the, the books that I, I found, that I used to write this in the show notes. Um, now, if I, if I miss, you know, if I sort of, if I make any mistakes, it's probably <laughs> my fault and not, not theirs, but um, so in the way that our last, you know, series on dispensationalist eschatology was like sort of a key component of your evangelical experience, this really came up a lot in mine, even though you're the one who was homeschooled. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, so one thing I'm hoping these episodes will do is start to connect some dots for uh, both current members of the Christian homeschooling movement and people who left it. Um, I want folks to understand that the intellectual underpinnings of this movement are not very old and not based in like ancient practices or longstanding Christian beliefs. Um, Well, you know, the 1970s, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And like there are influences like the Puritans and John Calvin, but this is really the work of a 20th century American racist anti-Semite with huge intellectual ambitions and this goal of transforming the world for Jesus in some specific way. So so today I really am going to focus on trying to nail down three different things. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the life of the founder of Christian Reconstructionism, R.J. Rush Dooney. Um, I'll do a little bit of a, a basic summary of some of the most extremist beliefs within Christian Reconstruction, which shows why so few people admit to actually being influenced by Christian Reconstructionism. And I'll talk a little bit about the theology, which um, forms the basis uh, of what many evangelicals, not just Reconstructionists, call the Christian or biblical worldview. So 
We're going to start with uh, Rush Dooney. Um, Which I have to say, all that we can all that we can say about him, it's kind of a cool name. You got to yeah. give him that. Rusus John Rush Dooney, published as R.J. Rush Dooney, and known by his followers and some of his friends as Rush. Um, I'm not well, going to. That, that's ominous. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to go as deeply into his life story as we did in the Norman Vincent Peale episodes because, like, Peale was this personality and celebrity, and Rush Dooney was more of an ideas man who was fairly unknown and obscure throughout his life. So he was born in New York in 1916. He was the son of Armenian immigrant parents who had recently fled the Armenian genocide. Um, his father was a convert to Presbyterianism, but like mainline Presbyterianism. Um, and I would say he grew up in a relatively conservative immigrant family in a Presbyterian church. His father was a, an Armenian Presbyterian pastor, um, but not a hard right or particularly ideological family. Um, and he really came to create the intellectual arguments that undergird a lot of what's happening with the Christian right on his own. So, and like he he was even a strong influence on Francis Schaeffer, or at least yeah, to some degree on Francis Schaeffer and also Tim LaHaye, who's a dispensationalist. Oh yeah, that's yeah. That's we'll, so, we'll get to that later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, um, so as he's as a son of people who fled genocide perpetrated by a strong um, state power, he was, I think, understandably always pretty cautious. And I'm going to say he was paranoid because he was that too, about the dangers posed by a strong centralized government. Um, we'll say more about his understanding of the state, but I think it's fair to say that he always saw the state as an intrusive power. And he came to a religious rather than a political understanding of the genocide which is that he, he thought that the Armenian genocide was about the persecution of Christians by Muslims. Um, and, he, and as a result of that, he had a pretty Manichaean view of Christians in opposition to everyone else. Um, but he, didn't, he did not start out as this far-right ideologue. So his family moved to California after initially coming to New York, um, and his father became the pastor of an Armenian Presbyterian church in San Francisco. He went to Berkeley. He was a liberal while he was at Berkeley. You couldn't say he was a leftist. Uh, yeah. Excuse me? Yeah. Um, and he went to a, a seminary, like a Presbyterian seminary after that. Not one I really am familiar with. Um, he was ordained in the mainline uh Presbyterian Church USA, which is just like a normal Presbyterian church that doesn't teach any of these things, in 1944, and his views were not, he didn't last long there. So, so um, like, I, I'm starting to get this real, like, Joker backstory, when does he fall into a vat of Chemical X kind of, like, question building. So a lot of it has to do with his... Um, he ends up going from the Presbyterian Church USA into a newly forming conservative denomination called the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which was more in line with this thinking, but also a lot more sectarian and extreme than, than they would have preferred. So he didn't last long as a pastor anywhere, so we're not going to talk that much about that. 
Pastoring um, actually involves yeah. lots of taking care of people and a right. little less constructing <laughs> of grand mental edifices. Yeah. So his views about the dangers of state power get really hardened and right wing when he served as a Presbyterian missionary for the Duck Valley Native American Reservation in Nevada for eight and a half years, which is the longest he ever worked for anybody other than himself. Um, yeah. Did, um, is there much thought about, is there much thought that like seeing how the Native Americans yeah. were treated by the government, like yeah, but I that shaped him or? Yeah. Um, so that's where he really started to develop some of his views about state overreach and the dangers of state power. Um, he huh. felt that many of the troubles that, um, Paiute and Shoshone people faced on the reservation came directly from a powerful centralized state, the government of the United States, engaging in overreach and becoming oppressive to the population there. And in some ways, I think he, he had some uh, empathy for an ethnic minority population being persecuted as, you know, the child, a child of the Armenian genocide. Um, uh, the United States government, you know, it was, it was doing all of these things that he saw. So, um, it's in that context that he started to see a powerful state as really fundamentally dangerous and as something that had to be opposed. Um, so what was interesting here <laughs> is he doesn't see the work he's doing as a Christian missionary as like in any way related to the, <laughs> the oppressive state functions. Um, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, and in spite of the imperialistic history of European Christianity, he doesn't see what he's doing as imperialism, even though we would probably call it some kind of soft colonialism. Um, he's not like the, the idea yeah. is that although the Christ, Christian missionaries may not be going in to like erase a culture, quote unquote, that they sort of historically they've gone hand in hand with other aspects of yeah. colonialist like government sponsored, you know, state sponsored efforts to essentially displace a culture and right. make room for yeah. the new folks. Yeah, so power has already been taken by force, and he doesn't realize that he's, in a lot of ways, an agent of that power. Um, so he also, at this time, he picks up on some stereotypes, you know, th racist things. Um, things like he, he, he claims that one of the, the people living on the reservation would come to him and claim that that uh, the other native people living there were lazy. I don't know if that anecdote is true, but but when he hears that, he takes this to be a reality about life on the reservation and attributes it specifically to the problems caused by a strong central government. Like, he's racist, but he would say he's not because he thinks this is not because of race, but because of state oppression. So... And, and it's interesting because some of the stuff that I've listened to him talk about mm -hmm. years later, after he'd sort of like solidified his grand theory of the world, mm -hmm. 
he didn't even really talk about state oppression that much. He was willing to just like expound for extended periods of time mm-hmm. on the difference between people groups mm-hmm. and then say, well, it's not racism. I'm just talking about the differences between people groups. Yeah, you would. Um, that's, you know, if you ever heard the phrase people groups in evangelicalism, that's where that comes from. It's really, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, that was, that was an angry, really not a disbelieving really, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, so his son, Mark Rushduni later made the case that he wasn't racist because during this time he adopted a native child. <laughs> it's just another tool of colonialism <sighs> that he separates out as something that's that's Christian charity, not really colonialism. Well, so. and, and to be fair, you know, that's a, he, he, that is operating on a very specific conception of like racism right. is personal animus towards exactly. people because they have a race. Yes. Not, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, he very much has essentialist views about different, as you said, people groups. Um, so Which he, really, when you get down to it, is just a... Euf- an academic euphemism for races for the most part of course like, it can meet like definitionally it's much broader but like it's often used yeah for sure because someone doesn't want to say race mm-hmm. um and so while he was on this reservation he started to develop this critique of public education he would denigrate public education as government schools. If you ever, I'm sure you've heard heard Christians oh, oh, yeah. talk about government schools or state schools. Um, and his critique of public education became the intellectual underpinning for the entire Christian homeschooling movement. So um, that's where he starts to believe that Christian parents have forsaken what he sees as a biblically mandated responsibility to educate their children, whether in small Christian schools under the authority of parents or in private home schools. Um, In turning their children over to the government schools, they've turned their children over to a secular state, which is, yeah. I I was going to say, what I find really interesting too is like, I... You know, I was homeschooled right mm-hmm. around, and I think we've talked about this a little bit before, you know, right around the the era when evangelicals and conservative Christians were really mm-hmm. starting to flood the world of homeschooling, which yeah. had existed before right. they arrived, but was much smaller. Yeah. And the there were, at least when I was like in that scene, it was like there were these two common parallel critiques of like government schools one was like that it's essentially like mass production rote learning yeah and that's a more secular critique yeah Yeah, and and like that was like you know john holt i think sort of one of the you know early ones on the secular side Mm -hmm. that was his critique fundamentally and it's sort of like the this this model doesn't fit everyone and you know a more bespoke learning method is much more is much better but then there was this like rush dooney fueled Mm -hmm. and you know they're trying to teach the jesus out of your kids yeah yeah, so he would he argue that it, um, they they're 
secular schools or state schools are overstepping a very limited role that he thinks God assigns to the civil government in assuming education. So one of his earliest books, which was a foundation, it really is a foundational text in Christian homeschooling is called um, Intellectual Schizophrenia. And it's a critique of public education. And his most famous book is called The Institutes of Biblical Law. It was published in 1973. It has multiple volumes and at least 900 pages, depending on the printing we're talking about. Um, it's a, an attempt to show detail by detail how to reconstruct a Christian society from the bottom up. So, and, and like by reconstructing it, it's like starting from first principles, how ought a society work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I mentioned that uh, the denominational uh, powers tended to find him too contentious for their taste. And so he didn't last <laughs> long as a pastor. Um, he, he spent most of his life as kind of an independent scholar and he funded most of his work, though not very lavishly. Um, he would never get super rich off this like a lot of his followers did um, through a small think tank called Chalcedon Foundation that he founded in 1965 and which was really the main source of everything everything he was doing until he died. So um, before we go any further, I want to mention a few things about his personal life that I thought were interesting. Um, he married- hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm going to take a big sip of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he, uh, he married his first wife, Arda, in 1943. Uh, but divorced her in 1959 after having her forcibly committed to an institution. Oh, yikes. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know a lot about the details of this, but that's what he did. And um, for a few years after this, he raised his six children as a single father. And, and there were times when he was in poverty uh, and couldn't secure funding. Um he was trying to work with different like uh, Christian or secular conservative organizations at the time and nothing really fit him. You know, he was kind of realizing he was going to have to do his own thing. Um, and was that when he had like developed this critique or was that sort of in the early yeah, days? Yeah, it was during his first marriage, sort of early in his first marriage that he okay. kind of comes up with, so, uh, the, with some of the critiques of, of uh, public education. So he married his second wife, Dorothy Ross, in 1962 during his time as an Orthodox Presbyterian pastor. She was a member of his congregation who was married to another member of the congregation. Uh, it isn't clear what happened, but she divorced her husband and married Rush Dooney. And so, meanwhile, her ex-husband continued as a follower of Rush Dooney and, and a follower of his teachings throughout his life. So it, they, it didn't seem to be contentious for the two of them. Um, and this was enough of a scandal in the conservative Christian world at the time that it actually made some people wary of working with him, like in, in Christian institutions. Um, another uh, What simpler yeah. times those were. <laughs> yeah. Um, another interesting tidbit. Uh, during his life, Rush Dooney was the subject of an FBI investigation because he ordered mailings from the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan and also from the American Communist Party. Just, I, I'm sure 
purely in, in the interest <laughs> of research. Well, he was not a member of either organization. And, and to um, be fair, those are two <laughs> traditionally moving in different circles. Yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the, it was enough to make the FBI think that he was studying American forms of extremism because he was a Soviet spy. <laughs> they thought he was a Soviet spy. That's the opposite. <laughs> no, 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 no. They totally got it wrong. Um uh, so his beliefs were more in line, of course, with the American far right. Um, he was this voracious reader who would have been following different movements within the United States um, and different political ideologies so he could formulate his responses to them. And he, even though he was not a member of the Klan, his ideas were influenced by racist revisionist history, which I'm going to talk about more in, in, a, in the next section of this. Um, and he would have been more sympathetic to the Klan than to American socialism. That's for sure. All right. So Mostly because of like the, the deep essentialist stuff that he ended up bringing to it. Well, not just that. I'm going to go into to this a little more. So, okay. um uh, the influence of Rush Juni on American politics is so vast. And, you know, we won't get into this all in the first episode, but I, um, wait. Okay, the, the you know, the, the, uh, the reason most of our listeners have never heard of it is pretty straightforward, and it's that Nobody wants to be identified with Reconstructionism because it's viewed as an extremist ideology, because it really is. Um, its founders, R.J. Rushduni and his son-in-law, Gary North, argued for the vast expansion of the death penalty to include disobedient children, so-called unchaste women, gays and adulterers, and this is according to their interpretation of Mosaic Law. Um, this that is, it, hmm. that, that I'm, I'm not an expert, but <laughs> I'm I'm just gonna say that like dramatically expanding the death penalty doesn't <laughs> seem like a check on state power. Well, it is when you see it as when you say when this the death penalty is going to be carried out by like your county sheriff and not. Oh, by the okay. Yeah. Say no more. Say no more. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's not there. There is no strong central government. Um, it, it, Just a whole lot of people that are allowed to kill other people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of this, the fact that this is a part of it makes it very easy for people to be like, ah, that's so preposterous. I only support godly government governance. You know, I don't want to start executing children. Um, so like, it, he, so like Rajuni like went far enough out on a couple of particular limbs that like, mm -hmm. it's very easy for somebody to say, oh no, 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 of course right. not. Very, you know? so, I don't favor stoning for yeah. disobedient children yeah. yeah yeah it's just like severe corporal punishment in, yeah you know. yeah so um i'm starting to get the shape of things <laughs> so too often people are taking at their word about this and the positions they're advocating are not measured against the wider system um and like while the wider evangelical world was divided over the Roe versus Wade ruling up through the 1970s Rush Dooney immediately opposed it. 
Um, he argued that abortion is a sin because it is the theft of a life and therefore a violation of property rights. These people tend to think of almost everything in terms of property rights. And so this, you know, as the theft of a life, the punishment should be death for the abortion provider and the woman who receives the abortion. Even that, yeah, there's like some, uh, there's, there's some like conservative columnists that have, uh, sort of made waves yeah. over the last couple of years. Like, I think it was it Kevin Williamson mm-hmm. and you know, some other mm-hmm. folks that like and have even, put that kind of stuff forward yeah, and were treated as like weird out of nowhere. Like, like this had never been said before. Yeah. And, um, and I'll even, uh, I, Donald Trump is not a reader of Rush Judy, but he, you know, <laughs> he said in his campaign that there would have to be punishments for women who received abortion. And that was also treated as this thing that came out of nowhere. And I think it did illustrate that he was out of touch with the broader pro-life movement, but, uh, but, but, this is an idea that's out that's out there. So um, even if it's sort of floated as the extreme thing that you disavow to like set a boundary around right. the conversation, right. it's an idea that is out there mm-hmm. in the in the in conversations in mm-hmm. those moments. Yeah. Um, so we kind of touched on this. Rustuni was also a racist and anti-Semite. In ways that figure into some of the overlap with the American militia and neo-Confederate movements. Um, I'm going to talk about these things in a little more detail in our next episode, but I want to say um, these kinds of things come up a lot in these discussions and are also used by contemporary activists to, and writers to distance themselves from the label of Reconstructionists. So, um, in his earlier work, he explicitly opposes interracial marriage. Um, he just he describes it as unequal yoking, as you know, the Bible verse that the people should not be unequally yoked, which is usually to argue against Christians marrying non-Christians. He, yeah, see yeah. that that's where I w- became familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. He uh, he argued against interracial marriage, although his son, Mark, somewhat disingenuously, in addition to saying the thing about how he adopted a, a native son, he insists that he wasn't a racist and that his views evolved because he performed one interracial marriage ceremony at some point, and also because he was an Armenian-American married to an Anglo-American. So... Um, because as we know from other personalities in the Christian right, if someone does something, that means they can't be opposed to <laughs> other people doing it. Right. Um, and although, so Rush Journey argued that race-based chattel slavery was unbiblical, he did argue that slavery itself was biblical because it was practiced in the Bible and was lawful according to the Bible. Um, and that under biblical law, Christians would be allowed to submit to voluntary slavery to, say, pay off debts. And that's mm-hmm. why the libertarians love him. Yeah. And that pagans, like by which he means non-Christians, could be taken permanently as slaves. Um, oh, so like mm-hmm. 
it's bad and terrible to for race-based chattel slaver to exist. He doesn't think it's that terrible, to be clear. <laughs> okay. Because he says that it's unbiblical, but he does also romanticize the American antebellum period. So of it's not course. the ideal. Can, but, can it, we it, just, but it wasn't like, really that bad. He, he can said. we just... I want to put out a request. If anybody listening like knows of some sort of like right-wing like reactionary religious ideologue who isn't also a, a huge racist i would just <laughs> love it i would just love it like not like as a haha like it would just be a real palate cleanser on these episodes because like it just somehow yeah. just always comes in it does but anyways yeah. <laughs> so um he thought the civil war was fundamentally a religious conflict this is a type a, a revisionist history that has been popularized throughout the christian right and it comes from him and in particular of his reading of a 19th century southern presbyterian named rl dabney he's a con- it was a confederate so he and then and then rush Dooney argued that northern states had adopted a secular humanist government that rejected God, uh, and the South had taken up the religion of the Puritans. Um, so, so this is like next generation, like lost mm-hmm. cause. It was about yeah. states' rights. Right. This is like, oh no, it wasn't even about states' rights. It was about secularism. Yeah, and the the way that this shows up throughout Christian curriculum, it comes from this. So this is the idea that it wasn't about slavery. It was about a feudal Christian territory being oppressed by a godless secular state. Um, so, and by oppressed, they mean being forced to give up their slaves. Mm-hmm. And this, this ideology had really fallen out of favor by the 20th century. And it's yeah. Rush Dooney who popularized it. Uh, I'm not saying nobody believed this. But we like inside of Baptist. like yeah. inside of the religious right, it wasn't it, it didn't have the traction it seems no. to. Yeah. And and so he really <sighs> popularized it during this time and spread the thinking of a, of this racist Confederate that so many Christian schools and curriculums now teach. Uh, when you, This is like the yeah. Confederacy history version of like people who are bringing back the measles Mm -hmm. so yeah he had kind of fallen into obscurity until rush dooney brought him back so so he's also rightly accused of anti-semitism um for several reasons um he disputes the number of people who were murdered in the holocaust that comes a lot from he had his friendship with um an american neo-nazi through the volker institute um, oh, yeah, of course. Um, and he does not dispute that the Holocaust took place, but he always had the skepticism about the numbers. Um, and also, he echoed a lot of the anti-Semitic conspiratorial rhetoric of other conservatives of that period. Um, a lot of so of, he would say that um, Jews were, you know, were smarter. We like they they were doing better financially, and nobody likes that. So that's kind of what led to the Holocaust. He would just casually say things like that. Just sort of, you um, know, slipping in that yeah. kind of stuff as opposed to yeah. perhaps 
a millennia plus uh, uh, right you know never mind okay yeah, yeah. sorry I... <laughs> so so a lot of his anti-semitism which i am gonna talk about in a little more detail next time um so it, it's rooted in a calvinist well in in a calvinist i think calvinist doctrine called supersessionism um, oh yeah, yeah. That was we, we touched on that a yeah. little bit in the in the um, episodes on the apocalypse and how like dispensationalists, although they had their own strands of like anti-Semitism yeah. and like replacement, like saw themselves explicitly not as supersessionists. Right. So and, I gotta, yeah. So to explain this, I have to make some theological distinction. So it's <laughs> it's it's um all rooted in this understanding that the God of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures is the same as the God of the New Testament. Um he is the same today, tomorrow and forever. Um and the fact that God sent his son as a sacrifice shows um that God is is a God of wrath and judgment. Um the same God who judged and punished nations in the Hebrew scriptures. So they call this the unity of scripture. Um, they believe that the entire Holy Trinity, that's God, the father, God, the son, specifically Jesus and God, the Holy spirit are all present in the biblical account of creation in the book of Genesis. They believe that, the Jewish religion has turned its back on this God by denying Jesus, Jesus's presence at creation in its holy scriptures, and that therefore God has withdrawn his blessings and grace from the Jewish chosen people and transferred it to Christians. Ah, so it's sort of like Christianity didn't leave Judaism. You left Judaism. Yes. So they more awesome. or less believe that Jewish people especially the more conservative Orthodox branches of Judaism are basically just Christians who have not accepted Jesus yet, even though in their view, Jesus is written into Hebrew scripture from creation. So they're just, they're heretics. Okay. Like the, the, in that formulation, and, and this okay. is, it's a subtle distinction, but like we, we again, we, we touched on this in a previous episode, yeah. but it's like the claim isn't even just that we have replaced Judaism or something like that. It's that it right. fundamentally is a claim that Christians or at least right believing Christians mm -hmm. are in fact better at being Jews yeah. Yeah. than people who today call themselves Jewish. Yes. And I want to also add here that the way they understand Islam is similar, but it's not exactly the same as the way they understand Judaism. So I went and looked into this because I once got in a Facebook fight about it um, with Reconstructionists. Who, We've all been there. <laughs> um, who And I needed to really understand this. So as secular people, we will make claims about the three main monotheistic Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And I understand this to be a secular claim about the origins of religion and of these as the three main historical religions which arose out of Middle Eastern monotheism. 
Right. Not yeah. like a theological claim about whether or not right. they are literally the same faith fundamentally. Right. So once um, someone I know who was raised Reconstructionist insisted to me that Muslims and Christians do not, Muslims, excuse me, do not worship the same God. And I was perplexed because I didn't understand they were making a theological claim. So when they say that Muslims and Christians don't worship the same God, they're pointing to the fact that Muslims believe Jesus was just a man, that he was not present from the creation account in Genesis. So, And, and also there's some, we, I'm, I'm not sure how deeply this is a part of what Rush Dooney actually said, but there's also like arguments about like, Allah as, a, as the god of Islam is also an ancient Persian deity who's actually a demon, not actually the Abrahamic god. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a lot of fringe theories that boil down to, no, our god is ours, you can't have him. Yeah, so, so if Jesus is not a critical component of the godhead, and Jesus is just a man... Even a Messiah, as he is in Islam, whom they don't worship, then they can't worship the same God. So yeah, then all these alternative theories come out. And um, they would say they may have drawn from texts about the Christian God, um, but they do not see this, that Allah, as just the Arabic translation for God, but as a God created by way of human reason that rejects their real true God. So, and, and I mean, not not to be a jerk, but yeah. like it would seem that the same reasoning would extend to whether or not their take on Jewish scriptures would be legitimate as well. Right. Well, they would say that Jewish people at least have real scriptures. They just haven't understood them properly. <sighs> okay. that, I, that, that is my understanding. So their anti-Semitism <laughs> is rooted in the same understanding of the creation Story as their anti-Muslim ideas. So Jesus was there at creation and Jewish people have rejected him. Um, Muslims, meanwhile, have erected a God without Jesus, therefore not the same God. So um, <laughs> you, you may have noticed I'm referring to God using masculine pronouns here. So this is because um, Unlike most Christians who think that God is neither male nor female, Reconstructionists believe that God is literally male. No, like... I don't... Oh. I, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. And they'll say that man was created in God's image as because God is male. And that woman was created in man's image. So, so man... Yeah. Um, so this is really the basis for the whole biblical patriarchy movement, which goes hand in hand with the quiverful movement, um, the idea of having sort of unlimited children, um, and not practicing any form of birth control. That That's um, way more labor intensive than unlimited breadsticks. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the quiverful isn't, is not the, something that Rush Dooney comes up with. But, some of the but it was influenced by him. And, yeah. 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 Um, and, um, and, and it would seem like this is also, I mean, well, well, again, not necessarily directly one to, you know, A to B 
connected, it seems like that particular conception of like what gender essentialism means to theology, it seems like that would also be almost impossible to disentangle from like anti-trans um, oh, activism, yes. you know, on, on the Christian yes. right as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's why this comes primarily from the Christian right in this country. So um, these are some of the main reasons why people don't want to be publicly identified as being reconstructed. Any one of them, maybe, <laughs> but like he well, just really racked up a greatest hits list yeah. with this stuff. Yeah. Um, so like, oh, not very many Americans will admit to wanting to execute children because it's extremists. So they'll be, it's like offhand. They, of course they can't be reconstruction. Certainly not for something like say being disobedient. Right. Um, so although, you know what, I put out a call on Twitter and I, I am followed by a number of former evangelicals and homeschoolers and they, a number of them told me that their parents would would speak like would tell them things like you know in the biblical times they used to stone kids for not being obedient so and and talked sort of longingly about this being the ideal so so even though like nobody's gonna publicly admit to this that that idea is out there um i'm curious like in some ways, these kinds of things are almost impossible to untangle without yeah. like yeah. a lot of really complex yes. <laughs> work that I would say is probably beyond either of our schedules. But like <laughs> the, the yeah. I'm, I'm always curious the extent to which that's sort of like, you know, Santa, you know, if you keep doing that, Santa won't come. And right. like how much it's just sort of the equivalent of like you know in bible times they yeah. would have stoned a kid for not eating his mashed potatoes right yeah you know? no some people told me that like that was kind of what that you know their parents said that they wish they could stone them and that in the future when you know they had had uh finished taking dominion over society that that that's how things would be so yeah so so um what I want to do, like, and, and I heard people say they were actually threatened with it, like, by, by abusive parents influenced Ugh. by this movement. So, um, what I want to do over the course of the, the rest of this series is help people learn to spot the influences and understand, and we're going to get into that next, um, the, and understand the language they use, because it's reconstructed language in the sense that they don't often mean the same things we mean. When we refer- sort of like there's catchphrases that have yeah. been overloaded with very specific theological and ideological like intent. Yeah. So like words like democracy or humanism or, or <laughs> phrases like separation of church and state or even the meaning of the First Amendment or the Constitution in general. They have reconstructed or transformed meaning according to what they call a Christian worldview which is actually just an expansion of a version of Calvinist Christianity that one man theorized into being in the mid to late 20th century. And I think it's important for us to learn to spot some of these things if we want to understand what's going on. So my goal is pretty modest. It's to help people be better able to translate this movement to the public so that it can actually be opposed. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the beliefs 
I'm going to try to summarize some of the, the main beliefs in the, the, you know, for the last sort of section of this. So they're Calvinists, meaning, and I'm not going to go through all the five points of Calvinism. I'm not going to do that, but I am. What? This, this isn't a tulip review class? <laughs> so they believe in a doctrine of original sin, which is rooted in what they call total depravity. So because of the sin of Adam and Eve, whom they believe were the literal first two people on earth and not literary tropes, so that all people were eternally damned. So this is how, so this is how you know, God sent his son Jesus to atone for these sins as a result of this fall of humanity from grace. Um, the people Jesus will save have been elected by God from the beginning of time, and there's nothing they can do to be deserving of God's grace. That's why it's grace, because they don't deserve it. Because and if there was something you could do, even choosing to accept God's forgiveness or oh. something like that, that would be something you decided to do that someone else didn't. And by right. that, by definition, that would mean you did something that made you better than others. And that's a human and since everyone endeavor. is equally mm -hmm. depraved and terrible. Yeah, that can't be accepted. Right. So, um, all people deserve eternal damnation, but in His grace, God has chosen some for salvation. Um, there's nothing we can do to earn it, but also believing in Jesus is not enough in the way it is in some forms of evangelical Because, like, theoretically, you could go through some process of deciding you want to mm -hmm. be a good Christian or whatever, but if you're not among the elect, mm -hmm. it just ain't going to happen. Right. So and you will perform the actions that will allow a Christian civilization to flourish, but you may still go to hell. Um, so you have to, so it's sort of like Bitcoin. I don't know. <laughs> sorry. <Probably>. sorry. <laughs> um, okay. So you have to believe, and if God has chosen to save you, fruit will be born in your life. Um, you'll make more money. You'll do better at life. You'll succeed more, which is where prosperity gospel comes in a little bit. Um, furthermore, poverty is seen as a withdrawal of grace, which is often the result of sin, but that may not mean an individual's actual sin, like a sin that the poor person committed, or just sin by way of the fall of Adam and Eve. It, it's sort of <laughs> like, in, in the Calvinist context, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. it, it's sort of like when someone says, oh, that person is a sinner. It's not like they are a person who sins. It's right. like referring to like modernity or something like that. It's <laughs> simply so. the state human beings exist in as a default, full stop. Everyone's there. Everyone is contemptible and terrible and just as bad as Hitler yes. until God intervenes and does something. Right. And although like, again, to, to go to the extreme example of Hitler, mm. although you're actions as a person in the state of sin may not have as sweeping of an impact on other people as his from God's perspective, functionally equivalent. Everybody is equally damned. And like, 
if you don't do those things, it's not because you're any better than Hitler. You're equally depraved. So, so God is sovereign and he can damn you even if you say you believe. So it's really not a simple acceptance of Jesus into your heart. You can never know for sure if God has decided to save you or not. And Except in theory, God could give you the confidence that you are saved. But you have to work to bear fruit, which will be evidence that you're saved, or, or at least that God has shown you some grace. God can also show, like, non-Christians grace, but... You know that you know that's because it's all it's he's sovereign. He you know so he can do whatever he wants. Um, I mean, to to a certain all, extent, this all starts feeling like the that episode of The Simpsons where like I think Lisa says that she has like a leopard repelling rock, uh, and it's like, but you haven't seen any leopards around, have you? You know, <laughs> yeah. like it, it's the yeah. it's a framework that. You can admire it for the rigor with which it has been constructed, but fundamentally it describes something that is absolutely unobservable because and it I, explains why yeah. all possibly observable or experienceable things could be false signals. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I would do, it's also, can you imagine teaching children this, you know, like, Nothing you can do to be sure. I, of going I to... have friends who went yeah. to Christian schools where me this too. was drilled into them from age seven. And yeah, it leaves too. some marks. It does. It, it, I yeah. would say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. So I want to go on to some of the main kind of ideas that are specific to Reconstructionism and not oh, just conservative I, Can I? Yeah. Can I interject yeah, yeah. One, one aspect of this? And sure. I, I think it's worth pointing out because... Uh, it's something that I've run into over many, many years, and it isn't necessarily an obvious conclusion at first when you mm -hmm. look at this, yeah. but one of the corollaries to this concept of total depravity that underlies a lot of this ideology mm -hmm. is that if someone who isn't saved by God, somebody who isn't an intellect or who isn't a, a Christian believer, mm -hmm. if, if that person does something good, it is literally not good. Yeah. Like it is it, because goodness isn't an intellectual assessment that we make. It's like the fruit of a tree. And if the tree is bad, then mm -hmm. the fruit can't be good. So if let's say uh, a bad person in the sense that they are not saved and they are not mm -hmm. one of the elect does goes out and like gives food to hungry people. Mm -hmm. That is not a good act right. in the moral sense because they are literally incapable of good acts in the moral sense because all of their acts are in that state of well, sinfulness. And, we, and yeah. this, when this carries through into political and cultural discussions, mm -hmm. it can be genuinely baffling yes. to someone who isn't, doesn't understand that leap. Well, not only that, but like they, for reconstructionists, like the, the only a spe specific people are deserving of charity. And those people have to be in submission to a godly authority in their life. And, and if they're not, and if, and, and in particular, if they're not believers who are in submission to a church body or, or a Christian family, which they see as the primary 
institution that should be giving out charity in the first place, then then they don't deserve charity and they, they won't eat. That's that's what um Gary North has said, I think. So, um yeah. Yeah. So um so one of the core teachings of um reconstructionism is called presuppositionalism, which I'm gonna try to explain here. It's a little complicated. <laughs> So early in his career, Rush Juni became interested in the work of a conservative 20th century, so his same generation theologian named Cornelius Van Til. Um, Van Til is the contemporary theologian behind presuppositional theology, which is like this epistemological approach to knowledge, which holds that all knowledge comes from God. Um, so, and, and it's sort of like the intellectual equivalent of that. Your actions can't be yeah. morally good if you are in a state of sin. Exactly. It's like if that were applied to the concept of logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the idea is that we all begin to approach knowledge from within a certain set of pre- presuppositions. So uh, for Van Til, all knowledge has to begin with the presupposition that the Bible is the ultimate authority and foundation of all truth. Um, And without the Bible, there's nothing but chaos and confusion. So Rush Juni takes this view and develops it even further. Um, He says that if all knowledge comes from the God of the Bible, then education is by nature a religious pursuit. So- Of course. Yeah. So whether education claims to find its sole authority in God or not, it's still religious. Um, and and, and yeah. how could it possibly be good education if it's not rooted in that? Yeah. And so everything purporting to be knowledge apart from the God of the Bible is based in human reason, not God. And he says this is a religion called secular humanism. You've probably heard that term before. It, it's, yeah. it, I, I feel like that is that concept of secular humanism uh-huh. and that catchphrase has just become so ubiquitous yes. in like culture war conversations oh, that mm-hmm. where it came from is, you know, who knows? It's, it's, it's just, just a word that's out there. It's just what Christians believe. So, yeah. Um, so if all knowledge begins and ends with the Bible, all subjects, Math, science, language must be filtered through the one infallible text that is the Bible. And anything that does not begin with the Bible as the primary source of knowledge centers on man, not God, and is therefore humanism. So that is not really how enlightenment humanism is properly understood, right? But when you... (laughs) That's not how a lot of things are properly understood, (laughs) but but, but go on. (laughs) When you hear people within the Christian homeschooling movement critique secular education as humanist education, it's because they think it's sinful to start with humanity as a source of knowledge when God is the only source. So Right, like it's not even like a particular subject being taught or a particular idea being disseminated. It's like they start from the wrong philosophical, mm-hmm. you know, starting block and thus everything that comes from it is yes. corrupted. 
Yes. So taking God as the fundamental source of knowledge, of all knowledge, is called, again, is presuppositionalism. And presuppositionalism is fundamental to what Rustuni calls a Christian worldview. And, um, and it also essentially denies that, like, there's really ever any meeting of the minds and, and dialogue that's really possible between somebody who does and somebody who doesn't believe that like all knowledge flows from scripture right right so they really think you cannot know anything without the god of the bible and that's what rustuni meant by intellectual schizophrenia um so so you would say that secular education which he calls humanist education that starts with man as a source of knowledge is just a jumble of nonsense so public schools will fail in his view and they should fail um, and even though evangelical Protestants in the United States had traditionally supported public education, it's in Rushduni's view, Christians should support any and all weakening of the public school system to bring about the collapse of public education. This is because of him that Christians have mounted the most sustained and successful attack on the funding of public education in this country since the institution was born. And and it's also important because so much of the rhetoric around that is focused on the concept of the failure of public yes. schools. Yes. But it's really critical to understand that although there are obviously many, many situations where the public school system has failed to live up to its charter for mm -hmm. many different groups and to many different groups of students. Right. What this movement is talking about as the failure of public schooling is yes. not a particular measure of academic standard, but the fact that it is the public schooling system is, is yes. a failure in and of itself and it could not be anything other than a failure so they so in policy that's why they go uh, for the you know attacks on the funding of public schools on raises for teachers on why, why they support things like school choice um and and support at every opportunity any weakening of, a, of the public school system because yes they don't think it should exist and it's also critical to keep in mind that that's part of the reason why there's this baffling quality of of the seemingly e the seeming eagerness to like tear apart the public school system, regardless of the mm -hmm. fact that educational outcomes are across the board in aggregate much worse for people with yeah. those systems not oh, yeah. available and mm -hmm. present. Like. It seems like it's it's extremely confusing for a lot of people. It's like, are they just malevolent? Are right. they do they just like not know how to read yeah. studies on mm -hmm. outcomes? But it's that idea that because the system, by its very nature, is a failure yeah. and will always be a failure, anything that is done to undermine it is is a positive step mm -hmm. towards a future. Right. Right. So of his own accord, Rustuni amassed this huge library. I think it was tens of thousands of volumes um, and engaged for himself in what in this practice of like reconstructing knowledge. He'd take a ruler, of course, because fascists like straight lines, 
read a work of, of Western classicism, underline points to stuff with them, annotate them within pages of that text to put all of this, the, the works of Western civilization in dialogue and under the submission of, you know, scriptural authority. Um, and what what this looks like in the course of an education curriculum is like, you alluded to this a little bit, but like, it's a mathematics text that insists that all mathematics was created by God and is confirmation that Christians worship a God who loves order. Okay. Yeah. And like, like books that say, I'm trying to trying to recall an example because some of these are, are are fairly deep back in my past but like you know books that would you know talk about like noah counting the animals uh you mm -hmm. know going on to the ark oh, as wow. like an example of the importance of early mathematics wow that's so and it's funny. like <laughs> it, and and like viewed like just through a casual lens that sort of ends up feeling like somebody who's really stretching to put stuff on their yeah, resume. And you know, I, it's like, I, uh, that's, that's a reach. But like when understood as part of this, like literally everything has to be understood through yeah. the lens of what exists in scripture or can be explained to mesh with scripture, even if it's not explicitly mm -hmm. mentioned, if it's not, if it's not something you can, come up with a good way to resolve that and mm -hmm. turn it into this scriptural worldview it has to be discarded yeah you don't really need to learn it um and and so like any study of history is about how god created humans and then exercised his plan and worked in humanity throughout history so it's not about what humans did that would be a, a humanist understanding of, of history it's about the working of god and unless that's central to your study of history, you won't have any knowledge. So, and remember, for him, history involves the belief that that the Civil War was a religious war, in which a feudal, you know, a feudal Christian state was was invaded by a centralized, you know, atheist secular. So. So that's that's the sort of some of the what the consequences of that are like. So, but I mean, to some extent, like you look at you look at this, and what what couldn't you describe as a religious I know. war? I don't know. If, if you take that kind of everything starts there, yeah, view, right? Ah, yeah, yeah. So, so okay. So, second idea he takes up is post millennialism, which. I do want to get into because we recently wrapped up a series about premillennial dispensationalism, which is a belief in a rapture in which all Christians will be taken to heaven, after which a period of tribulation will usher in the reign of the Antichrist and Jesus will return to earth and there will be a battle that Jesus will ultimately win. So that is not Rush Dooney's view. He would dismiss it as fairy tale nonsense. Um, and he, you know, he actually accepted regular speaking engagements, um, with Hal Lindsey's premillennial dispensationalist college group so he could 
bring them over to his side. And he did in some cases. Um, and he wrote the Institutes of Biblical Law, which is his most important book, in part out of concern about Lindsay's popularization of premillennial beliefs and to set things right in conservative Christian, uh, evangelicalism. Who, who, <laughs> what what self-identified academic wasn't troubled by Howard's uh, Yeah, for sure. Um, so he was going to popularize post-millennialism with other fundamentalists. Um, he, and that is that the idea that like we're already in the millennial so, period? No, not well, kind of. Um, he thought that most of the events described in the book of Revelation were specifically about things that were happening to Christians around 70 AD, so that most of the prophecies depicted in the book have already happened. And he thought it was silly to map them on to 20th century politics, like in the Middle East, as the premillennialists were doing. Um, Which, you know, to seems like a fairly reasonable starting I, yeah, place. Some of the which, he said, you're like, okay, yeah. I mean, he was, probably, he was thinking But Rush Dooney's suckered me before oh, yeah. with that seems like a reasonable starting place. Right, so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So he thought that Jesus' resurrection was the defeat of Satan that ushered in the kingdom of God on earth. So the kingdom of God is already present on earth, and it's the work of the Christians to fulfill the Great Commission um, that is the Bible verse where Jesus tells his followers to make uh, disciples of all the nations so that the majority of people on earth are converted to Christianity. I will say they, gener they believe in doing this peacefully uh, and not by force. Although, you know, I did, just, I did tell you that he... He said that we could take pagans as slaves in a Christian society. Yeah, like so, the, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm guessing that the word peacefully also has an idiosyncratic definition when stoning children is in the mix, too. Yeah, yeah. So, well, they did say that, like, conversions should be voluntary. Um, and once the majority of people were Christians and all of life was brought under submission to God's plan for the earth, uh, so that would be like once Christians finish creating the kingdom of God on earth, then Jesus will return for a thousand year millennial reign. After which, I'm a little fuzzy on what happens after that. He, I think that's when he. My understanding is everybody's a little fuzzy on what happens <laughs> after that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he thinks that post that the pre millennial dispensationalists have come to believe in an eschatology of doom in which Christians await the tortures of the end times and basically give up on creating the life they want on earth. So he believed post-millennialism was, uh, you know, in opposition, an eschatology of victory. And that could, like, Christians could practice this teleological faith, this, like, movement toward an ideal of God's kingdom, this perfecting project that would result in the ultimate victory on the earth so this is another one of those fascinating places where like you see like progressive secular critiques mm -hmm. and extreme reactionary like religious critiques of yeah the, so, like, of the premillennial or of the premillennial um 
you know, rapture crowd, both arriving at the same conclusion, but going very different places with that. Well, like, so like, like in a mainline Presbyterians would just be like, so we can bring about the kingdom of God on earth by like taking care of the planet and like being good stewards of the earth. But they took it like in this other direction. Um, so, so reconstructionists don't think the end is coming soon. Exactly. Um, but they do think secular systems of governance will ultimately collapse because hum- humanist governance is doomed. Um, it can't, it can't survive. Sort of like capitalism will ultimately inevitably collapse because Marxism is just the inexorable march of history. Yeah. Reconstructionists believe that, you know, hey, this is just the way things are going. It's just our job to be here and be part of the crew. Yeah. So you picked up on the teleological influence in both. <laughs> you, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, so they, they, they think they'll be able after this happens to step in and fill the gaps created when government fails to create order. Um, and they believe that when this happens, Christians will be able to achieve these mass conversions because they're the only people who will truly be able to explain what happened and why. So in some ways, they converge a little bit with the um, the premillennialists who are awaiting the tribulation because they both believe catastrophe is coming. And, and where like the premillennialists are like, I need to record all of these videos for my neighbors explaining to them after I'm raptured what happened. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a different parts, form. Yeah. 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 So um, this is where the interest in survivalism comes in among a lot of reconstructionists. Oh, so it's the belief is not that the rapture is coming, but that they have to be prepared for the collapse of our current institutions and that it's their duty uh, Rashtuni said it was the duty of Christians to survive after the current systems failed so that they could further the kingdom of God by taking advantage of the collapse. Um, Reconstructionist leaders like Doug Wilson and Rashtuni's son-in-law Gary North has both furthered these ideas and North in particular has made inroads with the American militia movement, which I'm going to talk about a little more next time. Um, so the, I, I'm, yeah, I, there's absolutely no time to delve into this, but no. I will admit that I just completely destroyed my Google recommendations for like the next, however, how, whoever knows how long by trying to <laughs> Google for any, any references of Rush Dooney and Boogaloo in the same <laughs> because it it feels like that like but then immediately after that you talked about the connection with like the militia movement and the like you know prepper movement and that idea that the collapse is coming and we need to be the ones who are ready yeah and no one else understands so gary north was the big if you knew people who prepped for y2k and i did then he was the person who made people think that Y2K was really going to bring about the collapse of American society and they needed to amass weapons and food stores and yeah. And, that's and, and like, that like prepping for Y2K as in like accumulating guns and water oh, and yeah. like canned beans, not like fixing lots of bugs in COBOL code. <laughs> no, of course not. So, 
Um, so the third, and we are going to talk about this in a lot more detail next time, but I, I, I am absolutely to... there for bagging on the guy who, who, who hyped Y2K without mentioning like annoying <laughs> bank transaction processing code, but go on, so, go on. Yes. So the third big idea is theonomy. Um, theonomy is their word for the way a biblical society should be organized. And the central theme is dominion theology. So it was Rush Dooney who created dominion. Well, I mean, he didn't create the idea of dominion, but like, again, a lot of people thought taking dominion of the, you know, so, so it's based in this Bible verse, Genesis 1, 26. God, I'm going to read it from the Geneva Bible, the biblical translation used by the pilgrims that Rush Dooney promoted. Ooh, retro. <laughs> yeah. Um, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the heaven and over the beasts and over all the earth and over everything that creepeth and moveth on earth. So, okay. So a lot of people like, again, in the, like the mainline Presbyterian church USA who are not influenced by rush duty are going to think of dominion as being like taking care of the of your uh, you know taking care of things and again being good stewards of the earth right like it, right. it can be a very broad term mm -hmm. it's sort of like everyone who believes that the world is a globe is not a quote globalist yeah right right right, <laughs> right. so the second verse that he's in which he sees a call to take dominion is what christians call the great commission uh this time I'm going to read from the King James Bible, which is also popular with Reconstructionists. And it's Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And in earth. So go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. It's beautiful poetic language, but um, so dominion um, just means rule, and it's the job of Christians to rule the earth here. It, not in a we're good, we ought to run things way. I no. mean, that's how it plays out, but like the rationale for it is just. God has set up a particular order mm -hmm. and the world, because everything descend, you know, everything that works descends from him. The world works better by his principles. And because we're his followers, like if we run things, the world will work better. Right. Right. So for Rush Dooney, the way Christians and especially men, the women can help in some very specific ways. Or to, to make, take dominion is through what he calls theonomy, which is his model for Christian governance, which I'm going to explain very briefly because I know we don't have time to do a lot in this episode. So under theonomy, there are three distinct branches of government. They are not the executive, legislative, and judiciary. And no, the three legitimate institutions of government are family, church, and a very, very loosely configured civil government that adheres to what we would see as a decentralized far-right libertarian model. So, so government 
quote unquote. Yeah. So Rush Dooney thought that European feudalism and the antebellum South were good exemplars of the model of civil government he supported. They weren't perfect, but <laughs> they were as close as we got to the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> so each branch is tasked with specific things. It's the family's role to discipline children using a severe regimen of corporal punishment. Um, and, and by way of home education or unaccredited Christian schools, educating them with, you know, ideally no interaction with the state, the, the state or the civil government. Um, it is most importantly the role of the father to make decisions about his children's education. And it's the role of the mother to fulfill his decisions as a helpmeet and educator in the home. Although some people will say at a certain age, women should stop teaching boys. So um, this is supposed to create an ordered home according to a biblical model in which it's possible to bear fruit. And that's how people within the family are meant to take dominion. I feel like there we're, there's so many things to just put a pin in and follow up later, yes. but I'm, I'm fascinated with like how the overlap of like manosphere, like, I know I like yeah. post weirdness men's rights activist stuff intersects with that, that is, because of how much it leans on that, like women usurping the rightful space of mm -hmm. men is one of the signs of society right. going awry. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, yes. And also the intellectual dark web, I think there's a lot of overlap too. And that they are, they would love to be in dialogue with each other. And I'm just, oh, really insufferable. Well, you know, Milo um, has converted recently, I so we'll that. just have to yeah. see where that goes. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so the next branch of government, the role of the church. Reconstructionists disagree a lot about the centrality of the church the church should have. So, like, Wait, are you suggesting that a Protestant offshoot sect disagrees about what the church should look like? Yes. So Rush Dooney thought that the central and most important institution of governance was the family. And Gary North has at times argued that it's actually the church. So... The role of the church is to, quote, make disciples of all the nations. That's how the church uh, exercises dominion, not by force, but by preaching. Um, and, and its job is to go out there and convert people, not to run families. Right. So it's not in that authority yeah. hierarchy, according to Rush yeah. Dooney. Okay, okay, sort of. Okay, so its main job is, its job is also to help perfect members of the church by way of church discipline. So churches need to send out missionaries and they need to convert people aggressively. But conversion does not begin and end with accepting Jesus like it does in some forms. As Evan it's making them into good Christians. Yeah, it's more than just belief. It's also bearing fruit. So once a person is converted, it's the role of the church to disciple them or teach them to mature in their faith. And what they're trying to do is create as many Christians as possible who adhere to their specific understanding of the world because they believe this is what it will take to bring Jesus back. So um, churches are allowed, are, are meant to have internal courts 
that are allowed to excommunicate people because of offenses like adultery or blasphemy or even questioning a church elder. Now, things like adultery, you may remember, are punishable by death by a civil magistrate, but they don't always, you know, Reconstructionists post-Rush Juni will say, okay, but that's just the maximum punishment. They don't always have to be punishable. <laughs> Judges death. have discretion. discretion yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so so part of the punishment is within the church, it's these church courts. Um, and the idea is that uh, churches should have networks with like-minded churches in an area so that an excommunicated member can't just leave one church and join another like-minded church. So Catherine Joyce has got lengthy discussions of what this looks like when churches start to engage in these kinds of practices, which they're doing. In her book, it's quiverful. In, I mean, not yeah. not for like youth pastors who sexually abuse teenagers, but like for people who don't have right doctrine. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you don't, you don't want to take this too far. You'd hope, though, some you know churches are trying to do things internally, and that's why we have so many cover-ups, right? But sorry, um, I, I th- there's only so much reconstructionism you can take in without just veering into just bitter irony. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so her book is called Quiverful Inside the Christian Patriarchy Movement. And again, that's a ru- a movement with strong reconstructionist roots that we're going to discuss later mm-hmm. in these episodes. So when so reconstructionists will say they support the separation of church and state. And what they actually mean is that church should fulfill its God-ordained role of conversion, discipleship, and discipline. They do not mean that what they call civil government should be divested of religion. Just what what they mean yeah. is civil government shouldn't have any any right to intervene in church matters. No, it's just that oh, the okay. church can only exercise sovereignty within these specific guidelines. So the state can also exercise sovereignty, but it's a it's it's understood as an explicitly religious project. It's, it is okay. Um, and the role of it, which they call civil government, is to be highly decentralized. Um, in, a the- in theonomy, the role of government is only to... And, and the people who serve in government are religious agents. They're Christians. They're not... But, but their only role is to protect property rights and punish evildoers. So, it, it's sort of like the civil government exists as like a delegated job spun off from yeah. religious authority, yes. not as an actual separate sphere of authority. Yes. So it is not to solve problems like poverty or inequality. And any social services are called socialism. This is why they get these definitions of socialism that don't, that don't, are not recognizable to socialism by, you know, as socialism by anyone else. So if, if you're solving social problems, that's socialism. Well, socialism is when the state. Has, <laughs> oh, hold on. I, I got to take a big sip of coffee before this sentence gets finished. <laughs> when the state is usurping a role that is designated to the family. So families are meant to deal with poverty. And only then, as I mentioned before, if the family member in question accepts God and comes under biblical submission. There's, a, there's no understanding of a state stepping in 
to educate people or, you know, deal with poverty or anything like that. Um, in this system, any form of taxation is theft, uh, as is inflation or any other function provided by the Federal Reserve. So if the value of money is, is uh, decreased, oh, man. the idea... The gold bugs are getting in on this too, yeah, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, the idea is that this steals from people who have a lot of money, and so it's theft. So these are the ideas you hear in the Freedom Caucus wing of the Republican Party all the time. And before that, from the Tea Party. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that Gary North was an early staffer of Ron Paul, who really shaped the, the political ideology of Ron Paul and who, who, who then spread those ideas to his son, Rand Paul. And that's where so like the, there's this, such a direct connection here, even if people who are espousing those ideas now aren't like mm -hmm. consciously saying, oh, yes, I'm a reconstructionist yeah. who believes the whole package from Rushduni, like the lineage of some of those fundamental ideas mm -hmm. that we consider like libertarian, like articles of faith, right. like the, the yeah. hard economic right, you know, Republican side of things. There's a very clear line of like inheritance right. from Rushduni's grand conception of like proper reality. Yeah, like neither Ron Paul or nor Rand Paul has said that they're a reconstructionist. And it's just, um just that um their libertarian ideas are are very strongly influenced by Gary North. So yeah. So um so also it's the state's function to carry out punishment, specifically capital punishment. They went to abolish the prison system by massively expanding capital punishment. Um, oh, yeah. oh, well, that's that's one way to reduce the prison population. Exactly. So the family shouldn't kill the disobedient children marched for death, but rather submit them to the civil authority, something like a local sheriff for death by stoning. And Gary North would talk about how, like, stoning was great because it was cheap and the community could take part. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, okay. Uh. <laughs> so that is as brief of an explanation of theonomy as I could provide in an episode with all these other things. And um, then the next episode, I want to tease out in more detail the ways these ideas have spread and become very important um, in the Christian right and also on the secular right. Um, so that's... So... Yeah, that's the... Story. So, like, stepping back, like, the the... the the pieces that you've sort of laid out here, like beyond yeah. like Rush Dooney's squirrely path through Christendom and yeah. to like founding his own weird neo-libertarian <laughs> religious foundation. Yeah. Like the, the, those ideas of like, of total depravity and the idea that like, you don't just disagree with the ideas of, or the, proposals or the tactics of someone who isn't a right thinking Christian, mm -hmm. like it holds that they literally cannot accomplish good yeah, because of that, like, you know, that poison tree that oh, everything yeah. they do or think or say springs from like that. Yeah. That's one part of it. And, you know, different people can like hold to that in different with different degrees of like, you know, you know, solidity. But that's a that's a thread that you see running through lots of different 
culture war conflict. Yes. Um, and then uh, theonomy is that like rightly ordered things ought to be run by my Old Testament, my, by my like modern understanding of how Testament. the Old Testament mm -hmm. system ought to be run in a big country, yeah. like that kind of. Well, yeah, again, lots of there is no, it, there but. isn't the, the ideal is there is no big country. It's, you know. Well, it's like what we would think of as a, as a country is really just sort of a, a loose smear of yeah, like-minded people in yeah. a geographical region. <laughs> yeah. And there's no central state that the government functions are carried out by like a county, usually a civil government. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it's more of a, of a feudal system. Um, yeah. The, the, so we, yeah. So we got total depravity. We got theonomy. What was the middle one again? Oh, uh, the first one, uh, did we talk about, uh, oh, there were two, the, uh, presuppositionalism. Oh yeah. Yeah. Presupp yeah. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Which okay. is kind of, <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of an offshoot of, of, uh, of total depravity. Right. But like, but yeah, it, it's, it's sort of like. If total depravity is like the moral aspect mm -hmm. of what, you know, what the implications of, of that concept of election and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. how that plays out, then presuppositionalism is sort of like what that means for the entire world of intellectual pursuits and human logic and thinking. Right. And the other thing is uh, uh, post-millennialism. Ah, yes. Building the kingdom of God on earth. So, yeah, and not waiting for a rapture. Yeah. <laughs> that that's well, a heck of a foundation. Yeah. I hope that was a good summary. <laughs> it's hard to summarize. <laughs> I mean, considering that he like that he put together pushing a thousand pages on these topics yeah. and then spawned off well, spawned offshoot movements i think that's a that's a pretty solid like high level overview <laughs> i mean the thing is they're extremely prolific and i mean gary north especially has has you know has kind of made a career of very quick reactionary publications in response to everything that happens in the culture and like oh, sort of so. the Stephen King of being terrible yeah <laughs> yeah yeah like the book rich christians in an age of hunger a book i told the story on on um uh, on twitter but it was a book written by uh, ron sider who was kind of like a liberal evangelical who argued that there shouldn't really be rich Christians because Christians should be um, solving, you know, he, he argued against consumerism and wealth accumulation and, and for Christians to take a much better, like more central role in helping solve world hunger and actually having like social conscience and Gary North's press, um, published a, a very snarky response um immediately after its publication and response and it like also that was republished in response to every every preprinting of rich christians in an age of hunger so reactionary like that um you know arguing for libertarianism and not helping the poor so. the, the the best way to deal with <laughs> there being a lot of rich people who should 
be exercising charity, but nevertheless aren't helping lots of hungry people. The best way to solve that problem is to let them get richer. Yeah. Yeah, there should be no it's... checks on that. They're just bearing fruit. <laughs> and it, it's interesting because like I've seen that the line of argument put forth in all kinds of you know books and even even like government civics books yeah. from like my middle school years that the reason like government programs are wrong and despite the fact that say it might help a person out of poverty or something it's ultimately going to be deeply counterproductive because it crowds the church and the fa and, and charitable families out and prevents them from role. being the ones that help it mm -hmm. uh, you know prevents them from being the ones that will help help you know the less fortunate and thus is working at odds to the real goal and it's like it yeah. no it like the whole reason we put this system into place was that wasn't working right that that, is, that wasn't actually happening so yeah yeah ah <sighs> yeah well well, thank you, Kristen, for <laughs> a, 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 a very solid guided tour of like the key points of Reconstructionism and uh, an, an interesting preview, I think, of, of you know, where we're going to be going in the next couple episodes. It, yeah. it should definitely be it should definitely be interesting. <laughs> yeah, find us on Substack and Twitter and uh, we'll see you soon.